Father, we pray that you would draw near now by your Holy Spirit. We believe that your Holy Spirit is real. He is active. He is present in each one of us. He is present as we gather, as we attend to your word. We pray that he would be stirred up in our hearts and thoughts and minds, in our will and emotions. All for your glory's sake. In the name of Jesus, we pray it. Amen. I did something recently I have never done. I made up a holiday. At least I'm pretty sure I made it up. I've never heard of anyone celebrating it, but I think we should all begin to observe this holiday, and I would suggest that this is the year to do it. It is called the Fall of Babylon Day. Yes, it is. It is celebrated on October 12th. Some of you may have seen my Facebook post debuting this holiday. It was a big deal. There was lots of pomp and circumstance. There was a small parade. I invited the president to come and speak, but given the nature of the holiday, he declined. <laughs> 2,555 years ago on October 12th, Babylon, one of the greatest empires of the ancient world, according to some sources, was taken without a fight. Now, I was studying Daniel 2 a few weeks ago when I made up this holiday. And if you remember back to that chapter, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, has this dream. And then Daniel is called in to interpret the dream. And the interpretation said that the kingdoms of the world will all become like chaff and be carried away by the wind. But God's kingdom will be set up as an everlasting kingdom. In fact, God's kingdom is pictured as this rock, this stone that strikes the kingdoms of the world, pictured as the big statue, and causes them to crumble. And then that stone grows and it becomes a mountain and it fills the whole earth. It's a wonderful chapter. Well, at the time that Daniel gave this interpretation, he was a young man. He was a rising star in the Babylonian court. At the time, Nebuchadnezzar was firmly in control of his empire. It was vast and strong, and he was a very, very powerful king. And so Daniel's message about the kingdom fading might not have seemed really relevant to them. Then, as now, people tend to construct their reality based on what they can see. And what they could see was that Nebuchadnezzar was in control. Babylon was doing well. And so no matter how good these dream interpretation skills were, the message of a young Judean exile could easily be dismissed. Well, this morning, we're going to consider, consider Daniel chapter 5. For several chapters now, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon have dominated our narrative. But when we pick up a story in chapter 5, over 40 years has passed. Daniel is now an old man. Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for a while. A lesser king is ruling. And by the end of this chapter, Babylon will be done. Taken without a fight by Darius the Mede in one fateful night. The line of Babylonian kings broken. Daniel's message is coming to pass. This is a good reason to celebrate a holiday. Why? Because Christians rejoice at the downfall of others? No. Because we need to be reminded over and over again that God's word endures forever. What he says will come to pass, will come to pass. 
no matter how irrelevant it seems at the time, no matter how long it takes. And so today, I want us to walk through chapter 5 and see how this dramatic reversal of Babylon took place. And then I'll suggest some applications for us today. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to Daniel chapter 5. Well, right away, we meet this new character, King Belshazzar. And when we meet this king, he's holding a great feast for a thousand of his lords. Much wine is being consumed. Now, the context, which we're not told, but we know, is that the Persian army is right outside the gates, poised for an attack. Seems a strange time to throw a feast. We're not sure why Belshazzar did it. Maybe it was to convey his sense of pride and security. Babylon's walls were very thick, after all. And they had a good supply of water and food within those walls. And so this feast may have been a way of thumbing his nose at those Persians. Or maybe he knew his time had come. Maybe this was a one last hurrah, drink, eat, be merry before the end comes. Or perhaps he wanted to boost the morale of his military leaders, although perhaps their time would have been better spent defending the city than getting drunk with the king, but maybe that was his reason. Well, in verse 2, Belshazzar commands that certain vessels of gold and silver be brought out so that his lords and himself and his wives and concubines might drink from them. Now, do you remember these vessels? I told you to remember them in chapter 1, but did you remember them? They were the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar brought along with a bunch of exiles from God's temple in Jerusalem. He took those vessels from that temple of that God and he stuck them in his temple to his gods and that was a way of showing superiority. It was a way of saying, my gods are greater than your gods. It was like the ancient version of the touchdown dance. So Nebuchadnezzar, he took these vessels and he showed his dominance, but we have no record of him ever using the vessels. Rather, over the course of his life, he learned something of Yahweh, Daniel's God. In fact, at the end of chapter 4, verse 37, it sounds very much like Nebuchadnezzar converted, like he finally bowed his knee to Yahweh as the true king. Makes me wonder if we'll meet Nebuchadnezzar in eternity when we're all on our faces worshiping the lamb, if we'll look over and we'll see this humble old man and say, wasn't that the old king of Babylon? Gives me hope to think that we might. Because if God can humble a man like him, then he can deal with my pride. He can deal with yours. He can deal with leaders like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump because none of us are beyond the grace of God. It's a stark contrast that we have. Chapter 4 and Nebuchadnezzar's humility, recognition of God's sovereignty, and chapter 5 and Belshazzar's sheer arrogance. He takes these vessels, he used them in his pagan feast. This was an act of blasphemy, sacrilege. To take something that God has set apart for holy use and to intentionally use it for unholy purposes. That was bad enough, but it didn't stop there. Then in verse 4 we read that they drank wine from God's holy vessels and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So they didn't just commit sacrilege, they also committed idolatry, using God's special stuff to worship false gods. 
Well, immediately, something startling happens. Something rather creepy. Something that would have been a great Halloween prank if it wasn't real. But given that it was real, it absolutely terrified the king. The text tells us that his color changed, his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. He lost control of his bodily functions. I'll leave it to your imaginations if anything else happened. What he saw that terrified him were the fingers of a human hand writing on the wall. No arm, no body, no person was there, just this phantom hand writing a cryptic message on the wall of his palace. If your kids are looking for a good Halloween costume next year, couldn't get any scarier than this. And if you really wanted to up the ante, when they went to trick-or-treat, they could offer to write that person's sins on their wall. Well, King Belshazzar cried out to the wise men, come and help, come interpret what this means. And he promised great rewards to anyone who could unveil the mystery. Well, all his wise men came, but they could not make sense of this message. Where was Daniel? Why was he not called? Last time we met him, he was one of the wise men. He was rising in the ranks. But now, 40 years later, apparently he is forgotten. We're not even sure if Belshazzar had even heard of him. He's certainly not considered one of the king's counselors. He's no longer in a position of influence and power. Many kings had come and gone between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego also, who had been in positions of power, now they're not mentioned at all, and they're not mentioned the rest of the book. Well, in verse 10, the queen comes to the rescue. Or perhaps more likely it's the queen mother because she seems to have some knowledge of the old days. And she's the one that tells the king about Daniel, a man in whom was found the spirit of the holy God, a man who had wisdom and understanding who could interpret things like this mystery. And so Belshazzar sends for Daniel. But in their interaction, he's rather condescending. He doesn't pay Daniel any respect. He doesn't give his God any sort of homage like Nebuchadnezzar had done. He does make Daniel the same offer. He says, if you can interpret this message, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and be called third in the kingdom. Well, in verse 17 and following, Daniel agrees to interpret the message, but he's completely uninterested in the gifts of this foolish king. He starts off his interpretation by actually recalling the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, the greatness of his kingdom, I think as a way to kind of slight King Belshazzar, you're not nearly as great as Nebuchadnezzar was, but also, and more importantly, how he responded to God, how he humbled himself and recognized God's greatness in the end. And then in verse 22, based on this recollection, he says to Belshazzar these damning words, you knew all of this, and yet you did not humble your heart. In other words, you're aware of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You can't claim ignorance. You have no excuse for your sacrilege, idolatry, and your pride. And then he finishes his assessment of Belshazzar in verse 23 with these words, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, 
which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. I think there may be a play on words with hand. Belshazzar did not acknowledge that his life and his breath were in the hand of God, and so God's hand came against him and wrote his condemnation on the wall. We will all see the hand of God one way or another, either holding us up like a father or writing out our just condemnation. Well, what was this message written on the plaster wall? Four words in Aramaic, mene, mene, tekel, and parson. In Aramaic, they were different uses of money, currency. But when you put them in their verbal form, they took on a meaning. And that's what Daniel interprets for the king. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. In Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. We have two expressions in the English language that come from this passage. The writing is on the wall and your days are numbered. Two messages you never want to hear, especially if it's coming from the hand of a sovereign God, the creator of all that is, seen and unseen. We're not sure, actually, what Belshazzar made of Daniel's interpretation. Did it scare him even more? Did he just ignore it and go back to the drinking? We don't know. We do know that he made good on his promise to reward Daniel with purple and gold and the third highest title in the kingdom. But his proclamations didn't mean much anymore. Because that very night, the Persians broke through. Belshazzar was killed and the great empire of Babylon had come to an end. Just as God said it would. Well, besides giving us a reason to celebrate a holiday, is there something else we can take from Daniel chapter 5? I believe there is. I want to suggest three applications for us. Daniel 5 reminds us of something important. It comforts us and it prepares us. First, it reminds us of a critical truth. God is in control even when we're not. God is in power even when we have lost ours. God has influence when ours is gone. Once Daniel and his friends sat in the halls of power. They were important people. But by the time we reached the end of chapter 5, they had all been forgotten. But you see, God didn't need Daniel to be in power in order to act. He just came with his own hand, out of nowhere, writing on the wall. Now, he did use Daniel to interpret the message, but Daniel was completely uninterested with the trappings of power offered to him. Before, if you look back a few chapters, if you remember, he had asked for positions of power for his three friends. But now, as an older and perhaps wiser man, he said, I don't want what you can give. I don't want any of your illusions of power and control. The church today in the West is quickly losing control, power, influence. Big decisions are being made and we're no longer consulted. 
we're not, not invited to the party anymore. We're actually treated with contempt. To many, Christians are part of the problem. And this is difficult. It's difficult because we can't help influence things in the way we want to. It's also just difficult on our psyches to have this precious faith, this faith that makes our life up, and to have other people scorn that faith, have other people mistreat us, or to say that we're bigoted or hateful or part of the problem. And then we see our country going in these wrong directions, see our culture falling into things that are terrible, and we feel powerless to stop it because no one's asking us because we don't have influence, we don't have power. This is difficult, friends, and it's probably going to increase. But let us not mistake, make the mistake of believing or of acting as if God is not still in control of the world. God has lost none of his power, none of his influence, Regardless of what happens on Tuesday, his plans will not be thwarted. Now, throughout history, he has used Christians or his people in key positions of cultural and political power. We've also found Christians in places of political power that used it terribly. We have a record on both sides of that. But he doesn't need Christians to be in power to accomplish his plans. Long after America is chaff blowing in the wind, God's kingdom will endure forever. So how should we, the church, act in these days? Like Daniel, the servant. Ready to act when called upon by God. Ready to serve the culture when a need is presented. Ready to name reality according to God's word, just like Daniel did. But not enamored with power not seeking after purple robes, gold chains, and titles, not despairing when they are not given to us. Daniel 5 reminds us of this critical truth. Second, Daniel 5 comforts us with this message. God will not be mocked. People will reap what they sow. If they sow sacrilege, idolatry, and pride, they will reap God's judgment. God will deal with the evil in our world, in our country. He will bring down rulers from their thrones. Now, sometimes he takes his time. Other times he does it rather immediately, as he did with Belshazzar. But we must never forget that God is a God of justice. He executes his justice along the way, but he will also have, in the end, a great judgment. He will separate the wheat from the tares. Now, I said this was a comfort. Why? Because it allows us to rest. It allows us to go to sleep at night knowing that there is a God who cares more about the injustices in this world than we do and can do more about them than we could ever do no matter how much power and influence we had. He will do something about evil. Wrongs will be righted in the end. Judgments will be handed down. And so we can lay down that impossible burden of being judge and jury in this life because we know that God is judge and jury. Now this might not seem like a comfort to us right away. But if you have ever been deeply wronged, hurt, injured, or if you have spent time up close and personal with someone who is the victim of great injustice, then it is a great comfort to know that God will not forget he does not turn a blind eye. And I think ironically, knowing that God is a God of justice actually helps us be a people of mercy. 
Because otherwise, if we don't believe that God's going to deal with things, we get anxious, we want to take it into our hands. We want to be judge and jury. We want to make something happen. But when we remember that he is judge, then we can live into those words of Jesus to be the merciful, to allow him to work things out in the end. So first, Daniel 5 reminds us. Second, it comforts us. Third and finally, Daniel 5 prepares us. For what? Well, we can read this text and we can put ourselves in the place of Daniel. I've suggested that we do that in the way we live out our vocation as the church. We can identify with the people of God living in exile. I've suggested that we do that in being reminded that God is judge. But there's someone else we can identify with in this story. It won't come easy. It won't be pleasant. But if we're honest, the character that we're the most like is Belshazzar. And as we identify with that wicked and foolish king, that prideful king, Daniel 5 prepares us for the gospel. The gospel is good news. It is the word of salvation, but it is only good news for those who have realized the bad news. It is only salvation to those who know they need to be saved. Now, I hope that you have never stolen these communion chalices behind me and taken them home and gotten drunk with your buddies or your girlfriends. But I bet you that you have used your body, which God has declared holy for an unholy purpose. Have you ever committed even one small act of sexual immorality with your mind or with your body? Have you ever used your tongue, that instrument that God gave to you to bless him, to bless others? Have you ever used that tongue to slander, to gossip, to yell in anger, to curse? I hope you've never worshipped false gods of silver, stone, and wood. But I bet at some point you have bowed your knee like I have, to the God of money, to the God of body image, to the God of control, success, and certainly to the God of self. We all put ourselves on the throne. And even if somehow we're managed to be clean of everything I've just said, which one of us has not forgotten to honor, to bless, and to thank God in whose hands is our very breath, in whose hands are the days of our life? Friends, the Apostle Paul said it clearly in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're a lot closer to Belshazzar than we'd care to admit. Without some radical intervention, our verdict will also be written on the wall. Like him, our days are numbered. Like him, we have been weighed and found wanting. Like him, the little kingdoms that we spend our lives and our resources building up will come to nothing. That's the sobering news of Daniel 5. But it prepares us for the greatest news in the world. When Jesus of Nazareth came into Galilee preaching the good news, and as the story unfolded, he himself in his own body became the good news as he died on a cross for our sins and he was risen for our justification, for our being made right with God once and for all. Over Jesus, God also pronounced a verdict. But this time, the sign of his presence was not this phantom hand. It was a descending dove. 
And the verdict was this. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This was the father's word about Jesus, the writing on the wall concerning him for all the world to see. Mene, the days of Jesus cannot be numbered because they are without end. Tekel, Jesus has been weighed and found perfect and righteous in every way. And Perez, his kingdom is not divided. It shall not be taken from him because it endures forever. That's the word about Jesus. Now here's the good news for us. All we have to do is say, I'm with him. I'm with him. In faith, I join my life to Jesus. I I bow my knee to him. And when we do that, we receive everything. We receive glory and honor and everlasting life. But I think the most precious thing that we receive is his own relationship to the Father, which he's now won for us and opened up to us. And now in this relationship with the Father, our condemnation, our verdict written down is erased and instead he speaks those words over us. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. I take delight in him. Friends, you cannot live a good enough life to avoid God's just condemnation of you. Do you believe that? You cannot have enough good deeds to outweigh your bad. If you have one small, little, tiny misstep, you're finished. You're guilty of breaking the whole law of God. This is the only way. Receive the gift that Daniel 5 prepares us for. Throw yourself on Jesus. Stop trusting in your own righteousness. If you're a Christian, you've heard this before. Hopefully you've accepted this news. Maybe it led to your conversion some years ago, but we need to convert daily. We need to wake up remembering that the grace of God is our only hope and live from that grace, from that acceptance, from that love, not trying to earn it, not trying to win our way into the Father's affection or into his heaven. If you're not a Christian, or maybe you thought you were, but you've heard this and you realize, yeah, I'm not sure anymore. You can change that today. You don't have to get your life straight. You don't have to sort through your sins. You can just throw yourself on him. Become his disciple. In a time, he'll show you what you need to know. But today is the day of salvation. So I'm gonna close in prayer. And both for those of us who have Heard this a thousand times, but we need to hear it again in our hearts. And for those of us who are this, this might be new. As I pray, I invite you to join your own words to mine, making them your own prayer to the Father. So let's pray. Come Holy Spirit. You know the thoughts and the hearts of every person in this room. We cannot hide from you, God. but we don't want to hide from you. You are the one person before whom we can stand because of your love, because of the cross, no longer with shame, no longer with doubt in ourselves, but fully accepted, fully loved, fully forgiven, fully made clean and pure and righteous by the blood of Jesus. Lord, we're sorry 
that we have been prideful. We're sorry that we have committed many acts of sacrilege and idolatry, and we ask for your forgiveness. Lord, we thank you for the great gift of Jesus, his body, his blood, his resurrection, his life. And now, Lord, we receive that gift. Maybe for the first time, maybe just another time, in a long string of times where we need to receive that gift and be freshly converted. Thank you for what you have done for us. Please help us as we go forward to live in light of this glorious gospel. We pray it in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.